Yes, and welcome back to another episode of Best Case Ever mini podcast series as part of EM Cases. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. I am joined by a very special guest today, a staff physician here at the Ottawa Hospital and assistant professor with the University of Ottawa, someone I've looked up to since medical school, Dr. Hans Rosenberg. Hey, Rajiv. Thank you so much for uh, the intro and having me here today. This is actually pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's like the, this is actually the first episode where I've recorded someone in my home in the same room as opposed to recording someone over the internet. And it's a beautiful home. I can't it's believe that <laughs> the salaries that they pay you guys nowadays yeah, exactly. is ridiculous. This is the R4 resident stipend is paying for the portable cabin style dishwasher. It is beautiful. Our, right? The way it slides <laughs> towards us periodically and you have, have to, to stop push it, it back it. is exactly. fantastic. It's also worth noting that Hans is also one of the hosts of MRAP, the Canadian edition, with Sarah Adelman, so he's no uh, stranger to the podcasting world. That's right, Uh, that's right. Thank you. So today, uh, you're here to tell us about your best case ever. Hopefully, it's something kind of interesting. What do you got for us? So, started off with a 59-year-old male farmer who has been found by his daughter and to be confused, and Tikipnik is one of these things that was noted in the morning of the presentation. So she brought him to the local emergency department. While he was there, they did some basic blood work, a chest x-ray, thought he had pneumonia, stated his vitals were all normal, and they said his GCS was 15 on their note, but probably wasn't given the confusion. However, there was some concern that he may have an intracranial injury or perhaps even a bleed, giving this sort of level of confusion for what looked like a relatively okay patient at that time. So he was going to be transferred to our uh, tertiary care center for a CAT scan of his head. Then something changed along the way, though. By the time the paramedics transferred him in, they called him in as a patch. So for us, that means that, you know, usually the patient, there's something about the patient that they're worried about. And uh, they reported that his GCS was seven and they were coming in in about five minutes. So upon arrival, we see a patient who has a heart rate of 130 beats per minute, rest rates about 15 to 20 as recorded and, you know, stable blood pressure. However, his temperature was 39 degrees and he was diaphoretic and modeled to his chest. That GCS that was reported 7 was, in fact, 7. Exam-wise, nothing terribly remarkable. There wasn't any localizing features. His pupils were equal and reactive. Really, the exam was pretty unremarkable, other than I just remember this poor, sick-looking, sweaty guy. You know, it was so bad that the ECG leads wouldn't even stick on him. So... At this point, we sort of reached, a, I guess, a decision point. And part of our differential diagnosis at this point was considering what could make a patient confused and have a fever. Usually, we say sepsis, 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 then sepsis. And, right. then and you got a guy with a fever yeah, and he yeah. looks kind of you know, crappy, right? So. He looks like crap. He's got this fever. So we tried to think, as emergency physicians should, and have a bit of a differential diagnosis for this. So we considered, well, could it be any drugs? Well, he, was, he wasn't on any medications. But we thought about sympathomimetic, serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic, you know, malignant syndrome, and anticholinergic, something like that. We were thinking about withdrawal, but according to the notes and family, he wasn't an alcoholic. We were thinking, you know, metabolic, could it be like a thyroid toxicosis, but again, not on any medication, 59-year-old male, so maybe, maybe not. And then intracranial hemorrhage was still in the picture. That could certainly give you confusion. That could certainly give you a fever. So that was in the picture. And of course, the whole infection side, including, you know, sepsis with delirium versus an encephalitis or, uh, you know, even a meningitis. You're entertaining all this stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. those initial vitals aren't actually all that bad. No. He's a little tacky. He's febrile. We see those all the time, though. Pretty much every sepsis patient, right? But what was remarkable about this guy, and maybe more in hindsight, but certainly at the time, was just how sweaty. Like, And he looked like crap. Like, you looked at the guy and you go, you're 
dying. I don't know what you're dying from, but you're dying. He had that kind of desperate look to his eyes. He couldn't verbalize anything, so he sort of got a one for verbal in his GCS, but he just looked like he was genuinely sick. So we decided, you know, as as a team, we said, I think at this point we're going to intubate the patient. We need to take him to CT. He's moving around. He's agitated. He's got a GCS of seven. So we're going to go ahead and do this. And And was he hypoxic at that time? He was not hypoxic. So it wasn't for hypoxia. It was really for his level of consciousness, agitation, and then also needing what we felt was an appropriate test. And he would have been impossible to do. He was just moving around, not aggressive, but just, you know, kind of like, fish out of water kind of thing, you know, just sort of moving around, moving around, moving around nonstop. And I mean, that's the reason for his transfer, right? He's being sent for, someone's put that idea in your head, rule out intracranially, you're kind of of obligated to go down that road, right? Absolutely. It's front of our minds, you know, even as the gentleman arrives, right? So the intubation was performed by one of our experienced and excellent R4s, and it was performed using RSI technique and completed on first pass. Of note, there was a post-intubation chest x-ray, which showed a left lower lobe infiltrate. So he said, oh, maybe this is all pneumonia. Weird, but maybe. And then the case kind of takes a twist. So at this point, we get some of the pre-intubation blood work back. And the first thing that usually comes back in our hospital is the VBG. Sure. So this VBG, which is probably five minutes prior to intubation, shows... uh, pH of 7.37, so far so good, and then we get PCO2 of 19, Hmm. and then a bicarb of 11. So, all of us, you know, emergency physicians or people who who have been trained in this way are all in our minds thinking the same thing that I did. I sat on the computer and I said, oh, shabugo. (laughs) Uh, And I got up and I said, this is a salicylate overdose. So, you know, we recognize the respiratory alkalosis and the metabolic acidosis. And clearly, that had to go front and center now. So we went into what I thought was, you know, the appropriate action mode at that time. So we increased the vent settings from, he was already at 20 because he did have that bit of a higher rate and the RT was actually trying to match it. So he got moved up to 25 and then the tidal volume was increased to about 10 cc's per kilo. This guy was like 65 kilos or so. Sure. So your initial settings, you're doing standard 68 cc's a kilo kind of thing. So we went, you know, from 20, which was a little higher to 25. And then from six to eight, they moved him up to 10. And that's what they felt was the most he could tolerate. Sure. We then started a couple of amps of bicarb and then we started an infusion. And then we also gave him some potassium and glucose, which maybe we can discuss sort of why we did that. Because his uh, glucose was 5.3. So initially it didn't seem like it was an issue. You go, okay, well, sounds like they did some of the right things. And then all of a sudden we get the next VBG. So that VBG is performed, I'd say, about 10 minutes after all the interventions and sort of 20 minutes from the last one. So at this point, you basically, you got the first set of blood work, you tube the guy, alkalinized him, gave him some like, you know, potassium glucose, changed the med settings 30 minutes later. And that's your treatment sort of window, basically, yeah. between these yeah. two gases. Yeah, so so that's pretty much it. So, yeah. And then we get the next gas, and it comes back red. So it's all red. So that's how our system shows you that things are not going well. And the pH was 6.89. The PCO2 was 120. And the bicarb was 23. So now we go, oh, man, we're in trouble. You right. know, this is really not going the way it should. Also, we get this nice salicylate level back of 7.2 millimoles per liter, which is a critical sort of high level and confirms what we're dealing with here. And for our listeners who might be used to hearing that in milligrams a deciliter, that works out to be a level of 99.4. 
at this point, we recalled our ICU colleagues and after, you know, we usually will call them after an intubation and say, hey, can you come down and start thinking about this case? Uh, we called them and said, hey, can you get down here pretty quick? This guy's really sick. And we also talked to our, uh, our nephro colleagues to start dialysis. So they came down absolutely in like two, three minutes. They were down there right away. And then just as they're arriving, sort of the next VBG comes back. So that's probably, I don't know, 10 minutes from the last one. And this one shows a pH of 7.03, but unfortunately a PCO2 of greater than 120. So our system can't even give us an output of what this poor guy, mm -hmm. um, his PCO2 is. So even with the change of vent setting, he's That's still right. kind of losing the battle. That's right. This is 10 minutes post vent setting changes, not getting better. Right. So at this point we say, well, okay, so he's going to go to the ICU. We got nephro here. We got dialysis. Let's get this going. And unfortunately the patient loses his pulse and goes into a PA arrest. Thinking of what the etiologies could be, in addition to thinking about our vent settings as a possible cause, and then obviously the salicylate overdose, we started giving him bicarb, we gave him epi, he got good chest compressions, and in fact, we did get ROSC about five, seven minutes later. Great, we're getting him packaged up to go to the ICU, and just before he goes, the ICU staff goes, he doesn't have a pulse again. So unfortunately, we, you know, he's back in this PA arrest, so we continue our treatment algorithms, again, considering the salicylate overdose, so... He got a bunch of bicarb, he got a, you know, epi, he got calcium, he got, you know, everything that we could think of for really this metabolic sort of PA. And then at about 25, 30 minutes after discussions with the family, we decided to end the resuscitation at oh, this wow. point. Yeah. yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I don't know how many people will tell you about their cases that go from okay to bad to worse as their best case ever. But I really thought there was a lot to learn from this case. Now, no, for sure. It's a complicated case, right? But there's a lot to unpack there. So let's talk for a second about acute aspirin overdose in general. You talked about some of the pillars of treatment, including alkalization of urine to enhance excretion. What were some of the other things you guys entertained? You mentioned nephro for dialysis. But since this was a presumed acute ingestion, did you think about maybe multi-dose activated charcoal? So it's a good question. So this gentleman had been found in the morning and then was sent to a community hospital and then sent to us. We figured it had been multiple hours prior to uh, his arrival to us. So we didn't really move towards the activated charcoal pathway that is recommended. And if you see it in any of your books or any of the talks, textbooks, you know, it's there. But it's just one of those things that at that point we thought, you know, Probably the horse has left the barn at this sure. point. So how do these guys present usually, guys or gals? So they tend to present in a pretty benign fashion. And this isn't even the chronic uh, salicylate or aspirin overdoses. This is just the acute. And even them, they're relatively benign. You know, there'll be hyperventilation, tinnitus, and GI upset. So that's the triad. So that means that never happens. But even, right. you know, two of those three might happen. So you really have to be on the lookout for it. And then I think some of the, the other important thing, and really this looking back on it, I wish I would have paid more, little more attention, is the patient's respiratory rate and effort, right? So you can be tachypnic or you can be hyperpnic, right? And it could be either one that's causing you to blow out CO2. To get so, that minute ventilation yeah, up. that's right. right? Yeah, yeah. So they're getting that minute ventilation up. How are they accomplishing it? They might be doing it by a mix of both or one more than the other. So you got to pay attention to that. And I think that's really, really key. And, you know, for the Osler files, there's still a role for the respiratory exam. And we kind of chatted offline on this, but it really the respiratory rate can be the poor man's VBG, right? And it can give you that answer, at least say, 
If this patient is not hypoxic, why in the heck are they breathing so fast? Why are they trying to blow out CO2? Is that a conscious effort in somebody who is anxious or is it an unconscious effort in somebody who's actually becoming acidotic? Yeah, that's a really great point. Just to think about why is someone having increased respiratory rate in the absence of hypoxia? So what were your next steps with this case? One of the key treatments that you would want to initiate, you know, right off the bat would be your uh, sodium bicarb infusion. You want to do this at about two to three cc's per kilo per hour with a goal of alkalinizing the serum at, uh, you know, pH of around 7.5 and then the urine, you know, at around 7.5 to 8 or so. So that's sort of the goal. And I think a common mistake that sometimes people forget about is that you're supposed to put the amps of bicarb into just plain D5, not D5NS. Absolutely, that's right. Because you're getting a huge sodium load with those amps of bicarb that's as right. well, right? That's right. So really just three amps of that, you know, 44 milli equivalents per amp, put three of those into a bag of D5, and that's what you're running at two or three times maintenance. That's right, absolutely. So that's a great key point. The other one is that you want to make sure you add some potassium at some point there. So whether you're doing it with your bicarb or even on its own, it doesn't matter. But you've got to be giving them potassium because for two reasons, it's going to be a big issue. One is that as you're alkalinizing the patient, the serum, their potassium is going to drop. And maybe more importantly also is that if you have hypokalemia, that your body's going to try and exchange potassium ions for hydrogen ions. This is going to make your urine more acidic and you don't want that. Uh, Hans, what were some of the other sort of subtleties we were uh, talking about with aspirin overdose? The other one that you mentioned, and we said through the pathophys, that there is a, quite a significant element of wasted sort of energy and wasted glucose, and then that leads to hypoglycemia overall, or what can happen, and, and you've got to be really careful, is you can actually get isolated sort of cerebral glycopenia despite a normal blood sugar. So for example, our patient's blood sugar was 5.3, which is bang on, but in actuality, there's likely, you know, a hypoglycemic environment in the brain. So you so, still empirically gave some glucose. That's right. right. That's right. So we empirically would give glucose. And then the, the other thing is finally, you know, where we got down the road where you say, hey, you really do want to try to avoid mechanical intubation. Now, it would help if you know that it's an aspirin uh, overdose before you make that decision. But if you do know that that's the case, then you want to think of having dialysis essentially concomitant to the, to the, the mechanical ventilation. Yeah, for our listeners, there's actually a great uh, emergency medicine clinics of North America, I think the issue is from 2007, that does a great review of the salicylate poisoned patient. And they echo the same thing that Hans is saying, is that if you're even entertaining the idea of intubating and doing mechanical ventilation, that you should pretty much think of dialysis kind of automatically comes with it. Now, just getting back to the decision to intubate. Now, sometimes it's a real easy one to pull that trigger, and sometimes maybe fools rush in a little bit. I know in our program, we've been indoctrinated with the mantra of resuscitate before you intubate. And that's something I've seen a lot in the past few years in the FOMED world, too, to really think about why you're committing someone to an ET tube and what you can do to optimize them before you actually try to put them through that process. Now, for this patient, in retrospect, would you have done anything differently? You know, was there pressure from someone else in the room? Hey, you know, you really need to get this guy too. Yeah, you know, and, and I've thought about that because anytime you get a case that goes like this, you want to make sure that, you know, whatever you did doesn't happen again if it was in any way uh, involved in, in causing a patient harm. And I think at the time with the information that we had, I think we did the right thing. I, I don't think there was that pressure, but you bring up a fantastic point and it's sort of one of the things that, you know, we kind of discussed offline as well is, the pressure to intubate a sick patient is strong. It comes from 
you know, uh, expectations of a resident or expectations of a, you know, a resident towards a staff or staff towards a resident, the medical students like, why aren't they intubating this guy? You know, even I know this guy needs to be intubated. The nurses are, hey, we need to get this guy intubated. I can't get him into CT the way he is right now. You know, so there's a lot of pressure. And then in our own mind, there's even that pressure to kind of gain control of the situation because you say, hey, if I'm the one controlling the vent settings, I can make this guy better, right? You know, I know how, what I'm doing better than nature. Probably not. So the next step is you go, okay, I need to intubate this patient. Well, do I need to do this right now? Is this like a zero to, you know, zero to a hundred? We're doing this right, right, right this away. Your anaphylaxis. Yeah. Yeah, upper airway losing burn, airway, that's right, you know, you know like uh, that, some you kind know. of caustic injury, something like that. Or is this somebody who you can take a few minutes? You know, I, I've had situations where the patient goes from needing intubation to not over a few minutes, you know, and it can happen in ingestions. It can happen sometimes when things settle down. I've had patients who truly are very anxious and that increases respiratory rate and they look worse than they are, you know, our, our COPDers often with their first big bad, uh, exacerbation can look horrendous because they're so anxious. They're terribly, terribly anxious, but you can gain control of that. Now you do sometimes go, you know, mechanical ventilation pathway, but it's different, right? You go towards your BiPAP pathway as opposed to intubation pathway. And I've had patients who are like, oh, you got to intubate this guy. BiPAP's not going to work, you know, and then classically, right? Like 45 minutes later, they're sleeping on the BiPAP with yeah, like great perfect. sats and they look <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And then you're worried that medicine might send them home, right? Like <laughs> right, they look yeah. so good. I think it's really important for anybody who is going to be intubating a patient to just ask themselves that question and say, does this need to happen right now? So Hans is making a number of really great points to take away from this case. For anyone who has altered LOC, try to remember your DIMS mnemonic. That's a D-I-M-S. That's drugs, infectious, metabolic, and structural causes. And even if there is fever and tachycardia, like in this case, not just anchoring on sepsis, try to entertain a full differential diagnosis and keep an open mind so you're not getting caught with surprises later. We also talked a little bit about matching your ventilator to your patient's physiology so that someone starting with a bad metabolic acidosis doesn't get worse on the vent, whether that's from DKA or an aspirin overdose or what have you. And of course, some of the basics and not so basics about managing a salicylate overdose, focusing on how to alkalinize urine. Uh, use of activated charcoal if it's early enough in presentation, and simultaneous use of dialysis if you're going to tube them. I also really love that we got to talk about that pressure to intubate patients, because even if you're in very capable hands and capable of doing it very quickly, well, it's kind of like that line from the movie Jurassic Park that Professor Malcolm says, you know, But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. You know, I didn't think I'd get to quote Jeff Goldblum on this podcast, but here we are. Anyways... Hans, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for coming over to my house. Hopefully this will set a precedent for more of our staff and residents to come over too. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's uh, really awesome. And it's great that you're doing this and working with Anton, whose emergency medicine cases is also an awesome series too. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, be sure to follow Hans on Twitter. That's at hrosenberg33. And follow me too, Rajiv Thavanathan. That's at Rajiv Thava. That's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Until next time, keep your stick on the ice. This is Best Case Ever, mini podcast series. Bye-bye. <laughs>